You know, as I sing, I think about the, I think about the fact that first of all, all over the world, all over the world, the church is singing about Christ. All over the world. I mean, just try to contemplate for a moment that Christ in heaven looks down on His bride in every tongue and every nation. There are those singing His praise. And in heaven they're singing. And then I begin to contemplate and think about this. When we enter the new creation, just think about this. When we enter the new creation, when He makes all things new, and He's going to do that, and His dwelling place is with His people, and that new Jerusalem has come down from heaven, and we're there. We're going to be industrious people, working, striving, improving, building, inventing, creating, painting, singing, writing, Reading. I mean, it's going to be unbelievable. Unbound by sin, the human mind finds no limit to what it can achieve in Christ. That's what's going to occur for millennia on millennia in eternity. And while we do it, there in that place, the songs we sing here will pale in comparison to the songs that will be sung as people do their daily tasks in Christ in that kingdom. I'm talking about when you walk the streets of gold, those precious streets we long to see, the songs you've heard today will pale in comparison. People will utter up praise eternally as they do their work. Don't you want to be there? That's where I want to be. And it's not impossible. It is not impossible to have that fragrance of life today. And what I'm trying to tell you is when you're going to be in a football coach, a salesman, a businessman, a teacher, a mama at home changing diapers, I don't care what you're doing. These praises come up from your heart and you've got a peace, a peace, a taste, a foretaste of glory divine. What we're going to experience in the new creation forever. We ought to be the happiest souls on the face of the earth. Because we're at home with Christ now, seated in the heavenlies, waiting on our bodies to be redeemed. That's all we lack. That's all we lack. How dare we go to work grim-faced and sad and beat down and downtrodden, no matter what's going on in this world. I'm telling you, I want to taste today, tomorrow, and forever the foretaste of what we'll have forever there. Don't you? Don't you? So I'm telling you, have church tomorrow. Mama, in that dark room changing that diaper for that baby, have church. Have church. He's there communing with you. Businessman, as you're working with your workers, speak of Him and sing of Him so that they might get a taste and be thirsty. I'm telling you, that's the beauty That's the beauty of being His people on this earth. Now let's do that together in Christ by His grace. And if we will allow His grace to well up in us, I believe He will save and revive Calhoun County.
be a different place. It's happened all throughout history. Whole cultures have been transformed by His grace. It excites my heart to sing. It excites my heart to confess about the perseverance of the saints, of the preservation of the saints. And it excites my heart to turn to a passage like John 10 and see the words of Jesus Christ. Now, we're transitioning. We've been in John 10. Meditations, the series called Meditations of the Shepherd and His Sheep. We're meditating on that thought. We're thinking about it. Okay? And, and we, we were set at the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, right? We've been there. We've been there since chapter 8. And then chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. And then continuing on the heels of that, we were still at that feast. All right, And at the conclusion of that feast, we have the teaching of the shepherd and the sheep. And it ends in 19 through 21 with a commentary on the response of the people. This is the way John closes things. He tells you what Jesus said and then he tells you what people say about it. Or what they think about it. Or how they respond to it. Look how they respond. Okay, It's precursor to the message. Y'all all like to talk about the message inside the message and those things. Y'all got one. This is two. Three's coming. Okay. There was a division. Doctrine divides. Truth divides. Christ divides. It's as simple as that. There was a division among the Jews. And there's a division in the world today. For Christ, against Christ. Doctrine divides. Many of them said, He's got a demon. He's crazy. Why even listen to Him? And that's what the lost world says today. He's crazy. I mean, He thinks He's God. They read the pages of our Scripture and they say, that guy was a lunatic. I mean, they may not say that out loud. They may say he's a good teacher, a good prophet, a good person. But in their hearts, they think, that guy's crazy. I mean, David Koresh-like, a little far out there for me. That's what the Jews thought. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's insane. He's demon-possessed. Right? And that's one division. And then those who believed in him, look what they said. But wait a minute. These are not the words of someone who has a demon. Can a demon heal a blind man? They go back to chapter 9. and I'm, that's, why, that's how I know he's summing up the Feast of Tabernacles. He's summing it up. But he's not ending his idea of the shepherd and the sheep. He's ending the first act, the first time at the first Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus taught this parable but he, and he's ending that feast. It's come to an end. There's going to be a gap of time now between 21 and 22. About two months passed. I don't know what Jesus did in those two months. John didn't think it needed to be in there because the Holy Spirit didn't think it needed to be in there. I don't know. I, he may have stayed in Jerusalem. He may have went back into the other parts of Judea. But for two months, we hear nothing of Jesus and His ministry. And then it picks up in verse 22. Now you say, how do you know there's two months? Because the Feast of Tabernacles happened our month, September, October. 
And the Feast of Dedication, which was not an Old Testament feast, but was a feast to commemorate the, the defeat of, uh, of, uh, of the, one of the most wicked rulers, to ever, a Greek king who conquered Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on the altar and set up a statue. He sacrificed a pig to the, to the god of Ju- called Jupiter and he set up a statue in the Holy of Holies to worship. In 165, Maccabees defeated him, ran him out, and reclaimed the temple. And they, they celebrated the Feast of Dedication. They rededicated the temple of God. It happened in the intertestamental period between the end of Old Testament time and the beginning of the New Testament time. That's when this feast was instituted. Okay? And they celebrated it on the 25th day of Shalev, which is either November, December, however you want to look at it. Okay? Right in that to our end of the year. The end of the year. So the beginning of October, in December probably, here's this feast. About two months have passed. And now Jesus is back there in the temple. He's at the portico or the colonnade of Solomon. It's an ancient structure. It was used by the rulers of the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees to, uh, to conversate and talk and teach the doctrine of the Jewish faith. And Jesus now is walking through. He's a bold man, isn't He? I mean, they've tried to kill Him already three times. And He walks into their teaching room, into their classroom. Can you imagine the shock? They look up, they're teaching, and they look up, and here comes Jesus. Caught off guard. I want to bring you a message today from chapter 10, verse 22 through 30 entitled, The Sheep Are Greater Than All. The sheep are greater than all. And that phrase comes from this passage. The sheep are greater than all. If you look, it's in winter that he does this. Probably a reflection of a double meaning. It's both winter, it's cold, and they are in eternal winter. They're cold and dead. I think John's commentating on the weather and the climate and the people. And Jesus walks into Solomon's colonnade and they gather around him. The first point in this message is the attack of unbelief. The attack of unbelief. And this happened not just in Jesus' day, but in our day. Unbelief aggressively attacks Christ and those who believe in Christ. Is persecution is all over the world today. It's even in the United States. Not widespread, but it's even here. We have a missionary with us. I look up, Mr. Higgerman's in the back. It's good to have you. And he could tell you, persecution is worldwide. The attack of unbelief is happening right now in the hearts and minds of the people gathered here. Those of you who are not believers, not regenerated, that attack is occurring right now in your mind. You're beginning to think, okay, here we go. The gospel again, I've heard it. I don't believe that. And that's what the Jews were doing. They look up, they see Jesus, and unbelief attacks them again. And it causes them not just to passively oppose, but violently oppose Him. 
Jesus is a slippery character. They can't quite get their hands around him, right? They've tried to push him off a cliff and he just walked out. They tried to get him in the temple and he just walked through their midst and nobody could get him. He's tough to tame, but now he's on our turf. He's in our classroom, in Solomon's colonnade. How dare he come in here? And the tense and the language of they surrounded him, that sounds real passive, doesn't it? It does. It reads that way to me in the English. But in the Greek text, this is that they are encircling him. Trapping him, hemming him in. You walk through the middle of us in the sol- in, in in the open court of the temple. You got away. We weren't ready. We're ready now, buddy. You're in our world now. They surround him. They hem him in, and they begin to ask a question, picking up on what happened two months before. How long will you keep us in suspense? They jumped back two months in time. They, they haven't seen him for two months. He's been gone. They didn't get a chance to ask their last question. And they're getting their opportunity. They got him hemmed in, and they're going to attack him. They're not looking to hear this information so they can believe. They're looking to hear this information so they can kill him. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ... Tell us plainly. Now, you and I have been studying the book of John. I don't know how long now. Somebody asked me the other day. November of 2005 for round numbers. We've been in and out of John a few times for those who are visiting. But we've been in it. It's kind of been the theme here for a while. How many times has Jesus plainly told them he's the Son of God? Jesus hasn't been on a secret mission He's been very open about it. He says, I came down out of heaven. And the Father sent me. And I'm going to do everything the Father sent me to do. He tells them and shows them by His miracles and tells them by His teaching over and over again, I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. They're not looking for information. They're looking for something to accuse Him of. Blasphemy. They want him to say, I am God. And when he says that, now they can have him killed. Right? He'll be guilty. We can get him. So they ask. And he responds, I told you. This is the second point. So we see the attack of unbelief. Now the second point is the reason for belief and unbelief. John's going to tell us why some believe and why don't some don't believe. And he uses Jesus' response. Look what he says. Beginning in verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. So, what's the reason for unbelief? Skip over to verse 26. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Or your version may say, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. I think that's the way the New King James renders it. The point is, he goes back to his teaching two months earlier. I told you I'm the shepherd. I told you I have sheep. I told you that my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. You're not in my flock. 
Is that plain to you? They wanted plain. Jesus gave them plain. Jesus spoke plainly. He made no bones about it. There's a reason for their unbelief though. And I want us to see the reason. Look in verse 26. Does the passage say, You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Is that the way it reads? That's not how it reads in the original language either. The causal statement. In other words, what causes their unbelief is they are not His. They don't belong to Him. They're not in His flock. They're not in His fold. They are not His sheep. Other places we see, we might say, they are not of the elect. Jesus is telling them. It's not. It's not that you've rejected me and now you're out. You're outside. And you don't believe because you're outside. Your unbelief is confirmation that you're not my sheep. Because he said earlier, remember, if you're my sheep, you would hear my voice and you would come to me. Listen, the fact that the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews rejected Jesus, that fact is confirmation of their lostness and their not being His. That fact of their rejection did not cause them to be outside of Christ. They were already outside. Do you see? Is that clear? I want to make sure that's clear. There's a reason for unbelief. And it is, they're not of Christ's people. They're not His sheep. And they don't believe because of that. Not the other way around. You say, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? Because if you make it the other way around, then everybody would be His sheep. And when you chose to not believe in Him, then you would become a goat. You'd have to change substance. Goats are not sheep, and sheep are not goats. Another popular parable Jesus told to teach this was the wheat and the tares. In Matthew's Gospel, he says, there is a field, and there are those who are planted in the field, wheat, and there are those who are planted in the field that are tares. If you're a tear in that parable, you're bound and cast into hell. You don't become wheat. I know that's popular among some teachers in our day. That tares convert over and become wheat. I grew up on a farm and my daddy grew wheat every year until I was about 11 or 12 years old. I've never seen a tear become cash crop wheat. I've never seen a goat change over to a sheep. Jesus is using definite physical objects that everyone in his audience understood to make it plain to them, the reason you don't believe in me is you're not mine. If you were mine, you would believe. In other words, when I present the gospel, 
to you or to anyone. I'm not trying to make people sheep and make people wheat. I'm out on a mission to seek and save the lost with Christ. There's one who has strayed from the fold, and Jesus is going out to get it. It's not a goat that he zaps and makes a sheep. When he gets there, it's a sheep. He picks it up and carries it back safely to the fold. What was lost is now found, and there's a celebration. That's pretty plain, I think. Jesus is speaking plainly about the reason for their unbelief. The substance of your heart is hard and unchanged. You do not believe because you're not mine. You're not mine. Now, Jesus also gives for us the reason, I think implicitly, why some believe. <clears throat> it would be easy as a, as a believer to take pride in our belief and say, I'm smarter than they are. That's why I believe. If they were as good as me, God would save them. If my teacher... If my teacher weren't such a good teacher and such a good preacher, then I probably wouldn't have gotten saved. So there's all kinds of pride involved in those statements. And Jesus takes them all off the table because he says, look in verse 27, my sheep. Why do some believe? Because they are his. They're his sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They don't hear the voice of a preacher. They don't hear the voice of a commentator. They don't hear a voice of their friends. They hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. If you're a believer today, it is because you are His. You were His from before the foundation of the world. He saved you by His good grace and by the riches of His mercy. Not because you were smarter. Not because you were more desirable. Not because you were in some way good. Not because he looked at you and thought, they look savable. But because he said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's why he saved us. And so the division that occurred in verse 19 is explained for us in verses 25 through 27. Why do they not believe? They're not His. Why do some believe? They belong to Him. They're my sheep. They hear my voice. And this isn't the first time in this passage that we see this type of terminology. Look back at verse 3 in chapter 10. Jesus says to them in the parable, or the figure of speech, verse 3, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep are there and Jesus calls them and they come because they're his sheep. Because he's their shepherd. Because they recognize his voice. Look in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. That's how well I know my sheep. And that's how well the sheep know me. 
The attack of unbelief is happening in the world today because there are those who are not His in the world today. And they're attacking those who believe because substantially there is a difference between us and them. And only Christ can bridge the gap between unbelief and belief. Only Jesus can bridge that gap. Only God can save a man. The frustration of the church is often because we're trying to do God's work that only He can do. I was telling our new members, our membership class this morning, the freedom of evangelism is bound up in the doctrine of election. You will share the gospel with great passion once you know that God has sheep in the world. And you will share the gospel with passion when you understand that when they reject the message of the gospel, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting Him. And they're doing it not because you're not good at sharing the gospel. You may not be. You may need to take a class on how to share the gospel. But that's not why they're not believing. Because you're not good enough. They're not believing because they don't belong to Him. And if they belong to Him, whatever muddled presentation you gave of the gospel would be enough for them to hear His voice and come. And that gives great hope in both preaching the gospel in a setting like this or on the street or in your home or in your neighborhood to say Jesus is out rescuing His sheep and bringing them to God and I am privileged to just be a part of it. Our lack of motivation for, the, for sharing the faith, for preaching the gospel, for testifying on His behalf is sadly because we have missed this understanding and we don't properly understand our role in God's work. That's why you don't share the gospel, isn't it? And you use a lot of excuses, but the bottom line is you don't like to share the gospel most of the time because you're afraid they may reject it. And in rejecting the gospel, you think they've rejected you. How prideful. How sinful of me. It's like having the cure and not offering it to to those who are dying because I'm afraid they might not take it. If you had the cure to something as as vicious as AIDS or cancer, and you had it, and you knew it was the cure, and you sat on it because you were afraid if you said something about it, they might reject it, or they might think you were crazy, or they might not like you anymore. I think probably when that information came out, you'd be tried and convicted of a crime against humanity. We got a gospel that's far greater than the cure for cancer. We've got a gospel that's far more powerful than the cure of AIDS. 
Unbelief and sin in this world are killing far more people than AIDS or cancer or heart disease combined. And yet, we will refuse to preach the gospel because we're afraid somebody might say, well, I don't want that. And then they've rejected me. It's pride. It's sin. We need to repent. Grace Fellowship, follow me and repent with me of this sin. Repent. I don't think there's anybody that's free of it. I'm not saying you're guilty and I'm free. I'm guilty. And this week has become grossly obvious to me. And I've spent a lot of time in my private thought confessing this very sin and begging God to embolden me for the gospel's sake. And now I'm asking you to do it. To lay down all excuses and all defenses and say, I'm a prideful, sinful human who has the words of life bound up in me and I refuse to share them because I'm scared of what it might look like for me. God, help me by your grace. Be bold. There's an attack of unbelief and there's a reason for unbelief and there's a reason for belief. And then third, we can say surely that there is security for all who believe. Based on verses 28 through 29, we can say without batting an eye that believers are secure because God will persevere them till the end. Read this passage. I give them eternal life. Notice the tense. I give. Not I'm going to give. I give it. I give my sheep eternal life. You have eternal life. That abundant life we talked about in verse, in chapter 10. <clears throat> in verse 10. You have it. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. When I hear that word, it's like... Power, energy, excitement, passion. Never perish. I feel like Romans 11. And to Him and for Him and through Him be all glory forever and ever. Maranatha, praise God. Security for everyone who believes. I mean, this is the greatest doctrine. This whole doctrine of salvation is the greatest. No one could think it up but God. I couldn't invent this. I wouldn't have invented it. Because there's some believers I wish weren't secure sometimes. Just to be honest with you. And you wish I wasn't secure sometimes when it's 11.45 and your stomach's crumbling. Let's be honest. But my security isn't in your hands and your security is not in my hands. Whose hands is it in? 
my Father in heaven, and nobody can take them away from my Father. So when Satan comes, and when his minions come, and when those who unbelieve come, and they stand in your face, and they say, spiritually or physically, do you really think you're going to heaven? you really think a sinner like you can get in a place like that? Come on, don't believe that. You thunder back. I'm in the hand of my Father. And you're not strong enough to take me. You thunder back at the unbeliever. And you say, my God will never leave me nor forsake me. And you confess your sin in front of them and say, I'm a sinner. I'm an absolute worthless sinner saved by an amazing grace. And I repent of my sin. And I repent that I've offended you. And I repent of all that's ever been done. And put it under His blood. And by His grace, I'm set free. My chains are gone. It's amazing grace. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Now, I titled this message, The Sheep Are Greater Than All. And I did that because I think, I think that this is a good interpretation, or a good translation, and I think a better translation is what my Father has given to me is greater than all. What's greater than all? The church is greater than all things on this earth. It's greater than any kingdom of this world. It's greater than any nation which would rise up in opposition. What my Father gives me, the church, is greater than any power on this earth. And that's not blasphemous only because it is powerful and enabled by Him. See, it'd be blasphemous for us to say, now that we're saved, we're greater than anything. But it's not blasphemous for us to say, our Father has us in His hand and we are safe. And in that safety and security, that being, the church, is greater than anything else. The church is. The church, church is not and never will be defeated. The gates of hell can't prevail against the onslaught of the gospel. That's what the Bible says in Matthew 16. We are on the move in Christianity. Are there hard times? Yes. Is there going to be a crescendo at the end which brings an utter clash of evil and good? Yes. But it's already written. They lose. We win. Because our Father has us. We're not trying to win. Victory is ours. Victory is the church. Victory is ours. Nothing, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That security which is promised is based on the Father. Because nothing is stronger than the Father. Romans 8, beginning in verse 30, and going through the end of the chapter, says this very plainly. Not death, not life. Not height, not depth. Not any created thing can separate you from the love of God. Now, we have to ask the question, what is separated? I mean, what is created? 
that can't separate us. What is created? The things of this world, are they created? Yes, then they can't separate you from God. Are demons and Satan himself created beings? Absolutely. Therefore, they cannot separate you from the love of God. Here's the sticky one. Are you created? Huh? Yes. Therefore, you cannot separate yourself from the love of God. I told the people in the membership class, the only people in eternity not where they wanted to be originally are those who are in heaven. People talk about freedom of the will and they say, it's not fair that God makes people go to heaven and go to hell. God doesn't make people go to hell. People want to go to hell. They want it. They lust after it. And if you went to hell right now and said, I'll spring everybody out of this joint that believes in Jesus, they'd curse you to your face. And they'd spit on him again. And they'd say, if that's what it takes to get out of this, forget it, buddy. I don't want to go. They're where they want to be. Believers are the ones who've been taken from where they wanted to be to heaven. They've been changed and transformed by the gospel. And now they're not where they originally wanted to be away from Christ. They're with him. God brought them there. And they're secure because they're in God. And nothing created can separate them. Nothing can. And I end with this statement. What is the guarantee of our security? That's the last question I have for this text. What then, Jesus? You tell me that nothing can separate me, but what makes me sure of that? I and the Father are one. So created things can't separate me, but God can. He won't because He's one with His Son. And His Son is one with Him. You're safe not only from created things, but you're safe from the wrath of God because He's one with His Son. And His Son is one with Him. That word translated one is neuter. That doesn't mean a lot to you. It means a lot to me. Jesus is not saying we are one person. The Father and me. We're one person. That would be a denial of the Trinity. And many people use this to deny the Trinity. They say, see, Jesus said He's the Father. And the, uh, we're one. That's not what the verse says. It's neuter. Therefore, it applies to the essence of who they are. Not the person of who they are. They're two people. Two persons in one essence. They're united in their essence. In their being. But they are eternally three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're secure because of the Trinity. That's why it means so much to me. How do I know I'm secure? Okay, created things can't take me away, but how do I get assurance that God won't separate me because of the Trinity? Because God set you apart from before the foundation of the world. His Son bought and ransomed you from sin and brought you to Him. And His Spirit seals you forever. The Trinity 
prevents my falling away. The God three in one. I and the Father are one. There's unbelief. And they are on the attack. And there's a reason for it. They're not His. And we're secure in belief because He's one with His Father. And His Father is one with Him. They have a unity of purpose which cannot be defeated. Now, if you can't leave this place energetic about your salvation and the hope that Christ offers to this lost world, check the wood. It's wet. Because the fire of this text should have ignited you. If it didn't, not my fire, forget that, the fire of the text, if it didn't ignite you, there's a heart problem. In deep in here, there's an issue that only God can resolve. So I beg you, fall on your face, saved or lost, and thank God for salvation and cling to Jesus Christ because He guarantees your eternal, safe, and secure passage. Let's pray. Father in heaven,